Preaching God's Word this morning will be David Van Drunen. Uh, he is no stranger to Omaha Bible Church. Uh, I would count him as a friend of our church. Uh, he's a friend of our church because we utilize uh, numerous books of his in different ministries, so thankful for his writing ministry. Uh, also, he would be a friend because he's been here before. He's been here uh, for a couple of conferences now with us, and also because of his role as a seminary professor uh, at Westminster Seminary, California, where we've been sending men and he's been helping to train. And so I'm super thankful for him. I'm thankful for the Lord's work in his life, for his ministry, and I'm thankful that he can come today and preach God's word to us. So let's welcome David Van Drunen as he comes. Thank you. It really is good to be here, and I'm happy to be considered a friend of the congregation. The feeling is mutual. Uh, I'm really grateful for the hospitality and uh, the kindness that you show me this weekend again. Uh, our scripture reading uh, this morning, a text for the sermon, is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Hear the word of God. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sends a reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have not left us in the darkness and misery of our sin, but you have come to us, and by the power of your word and spirit, you have given us light. And we thank you for this text that is before us. We pray that, indeed, you would bless its reading and now its preaching. 
We pray that the same Spirit who inspired these words to be written long ago would also illumine our hearts and our minds, that we might receive your word with faith and repentance, that your Son may be glorified, and that we might be encouraged as we walk before him as his grateful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by asking you a question. When you think of your political leaders, what do you think of? What characterizes them? Now, I can assure you that that's not ordinarily the way I would begin a sermon. It's not ordinarily the sort of things I would probably want to encourage you to be thinking about in the midst of worship. But actually, the text before us wants us to ask that question. It wants us to think about these things. Now, of course, there are many exceptions to what we might think of as the general rule of what characterizes our political leaders. But when I ask you the question, you may initially think of, well, people who are bombastic, deceptive, manipulative, people who crave honor and glory, people who like having others under their command, people who like influence, who like recognition, who like praise. It's easy to condemn others, easy to look at others and see their faults and to look down on others. But you know, there's a more important question that this text also wants us to ask. What characterizes you? It's easy to look at others and see their sins, but it's often difficult to look at ourselves and recognize the very same sins in our own way that plague us. Yes, we can look at others, especially those who are in power, and see how they may crave honor and respect and want influence and recognition. But how easy it is for us in our own spheres of life to desire and crave the very same things. This text that is before us, it calls our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it asks us to consider him and what characterized him in his work of redemption on our behalf. And to know that it's those things that ought to characterize us as his people. And it is surely not craving honor and power that characterized Christ as he came to accomplish the work of salvation for us. But it was suffering and service. And that's what this text calls us to as well. Let's look first at verses 35 through 40, where we find, in the first part of this story, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, come and have a private conversation with him. Now, James and John were two of the most prominent disciples along with Peter. I mean, these were the three disciples that got to go up in the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord. Well, these two disciples come to Jesus privately and speak to him. Now, one of the first things that we notice here in this text is that James and John take the initiative. Right? Jesus doesn't summon them into a private conversation. They take the initiative and they speak first to Jesus before he says anything to them 
And they have an agenda that they want to pursue. Now, if we were reading the whole of Mark 10, um, uh, if we had been reading previous stories, this might remind us of something. It might remind us of the story that begins in verse 17 of the rich young man. It's a well-known story that probably many of you are familiar with. This young man who is wealthy comes to Jesus and asks what he should do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, what are the commands? And he reminds him of some of the basic commands. And he says, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus says, well, sell all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he's wealthy and doesn't want to part with his possessions. Now, the reason I point that out is that in verse 17, the beginning of that story, this man takes the initiative. He's not summoned by Jesus. He goes up to, he runs up to Jesus. He speaks to him first before Jesus can say anything to him. And he's got an agenda that he wants to pursue. Now, it doesn't actually end up very well for this young man. And it's interesting that now Jesus' disciples come and they follow the same pattern. They take the initiative. They come to Jesus. They have an agenda that they want to pursue. And what a thing that they ask of Jesus. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Make us the most exalted people in the whole universe. May we have the places of honor at your right and left. Now, again, if we were reading the whole of Mark chapter 10, their request would strike us as even more unbelievable than it already is. Because in the verses just preceding this, verses 32 through 34, Jesus has said to his disciples, and so James and John have heard this. Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus has just said to them, we are going to Jerusalem and I am going to be condemned unjustly. I am going to be beaten up and spit upon and I'm going to be crucified. And the first thing that comes to the mind of James and John is, we would like places of glory at your right and left. What were they thinking? It's not surprising that Jesus' response to them in verse 38 is, you do not know what you are asking. And what Jesus says next may be a little initially puzzling, but very profound when we think about it. Jesus says in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is Jesus talking about there? Drinking the cup, being baptized with a baptism. I understand what Jesus is getting at. We have to understand that he's referring to some Old Testament ideas. And what he's saying is, I am going to die. I am going to suffer and die. Are you able to do that? Why does he use this imagery of the cup and of baptism? Well, the idea of the cup is one 
that is used many times, a number of times in the Old Testament. Now, it may sound very innocent. I mean, we all drink from cups every day. But a number of places in the Old Testament, we read of a cup of the Lord, and it is a cup of wrath, a cup of judgment. Let me give you just one example. In Psalm 75, which is a, it's a small, a short psalm, but a psalm of talks about God as the great judge of all the earth. And in Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. There is a cup. It is a cup of the Lord's wrath, and it's for the wicked. And they're not just going to drink some of it. They're going to drink it down to the very bottom. This is the cup that Jesus is about to drink, the cup of God's wrath, the cup reserved for the wicked. He is going to drink of that cup. You remember on the night he was betrayed the garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went by himself and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. This is the same cup he's talking about. He is about to drink of the cup of God's wrath. What about baptism? Well, we probably think baptism, we think of being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And rightly so. We think of baptism as symbolic of the washing away of our sins, and rightly so. But you know, baptism means more than just that. Baptism is also a sign of God's judgment. You know, the New Testament, when describing the waters of the Red Sea that split apart for Israel to walk through and that drowned the armies of the Egyptians, it refers to that as a baptism. The flood of Noah's day, the New Testament calls that a baptism. And it's interesting that in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said to his disciples, I have a baptism that I need to undergo. And I am distressed until I experience that. Baptism is a sign not only of the washing away of sin, but it is only a sign of that because it is also a sign of judgment, a sign of judgment that Christ himself would experience. And so Jesus says to James and John, I have a cup to drink. I have a baptism with which I need to be baptized. I need to go to the cross I need to endure the wrath of God on behalf of my people. Are you able to experience that? Well, what do we expect James and John to say after being confronted with this sobering truth? Probably expect them to say no. Or maybe, with your help, O Lord, perhaps. Instead, they say, we are able Pretty confident people. But of course, we remember, they don't understand. They don't know what they're asking. And then Jesus says to them, verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So there's a sense in which they're right. It's not going to be on their terms in the way they think, but in Christ's terms, according to the way he has planned. 
And this brings us to the first of the main points that we need to consider this morning. Two ways that characterize Christ in his work of redemption that needs to characterize us as well as his people. And the first is that we are called to suffer like Christ. Christ, the everlasting, eternal Son of God, came to this world to suffer, to drink of a cup, to be baptized with a baptism. And we who are his people are called for a time to suffer with him. Now we remember that only Christ's suffering is vicarious. That's a big theological word we use to describe one acting in the place of another. Only Christ suffers on behalf of his people. Only Christ's suffering is atoning. Only his suffering can take away sin. And yet he calls his people to follow his pattern, to suffer first and then to be glorified. James and John wanted to jump to the end of the story without going through the first part of the story. We are called to suffer first and then to be glorified with Christ. Think about James and John. They had a lot to learn. They wanted a place in glory but they're called to drink of a cup along with Christ and to be baptized with a baptism with him. Do you remember how the apostle James ended his life? You might think of Acts chapter 12, put to death by King Herod on behalf of the gospel ministry. How about the apostle John? We don't know exactly. We're not given an account of his death, but the last we know of John He's exiled on the island of Patmos, where he may well have ended his life as a martyr as well. They had to learn what it was like to suffer with Christ for a time. How about you? I can't say what Christ may call of you. For some of you, it may be that you will be called to die on behalf of Christ. Probably not, but maybe. You may be asked to give up your reputation in this world. You may be asked to give up your career on behalf of Christ. You may be asked to give up your family on behalf of Christ. No one of us knows right now what Christ may ask of, it, of us. But we are called to suffer with Christ and then to enter glory with him. But I wanted to call your attention to one other thing in regard to this first point. Interesting imagery, isn't it? Drinking of the cup, being baptized with a baptism. Because in the church of Jesus Christ, we celebrate baptism. And in the church of Jesus Christ, we celebrate drinking of a cup. We baptized disciples of Christ. We celebrate by Christ's death by eating bread and drinking wine. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that these are the images that Jesus uses. And this should be of comfort and encouragement for all of us as we are called to suffer with Christ for a time in this world. 
Remember, you who are baptized, your baptism means that when you suffer, you do not suffer alone, but you suffer in fellowship with your Savior. When you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, remember that you do not have to stand under the wrath of God because Christ has drunk that cup for you. May that be a consolation to you in times of suffering. May it be encouragement to you when your life does not seem like one of glory here and now. Well, this first part of our, our text ends in verse 40, and Jesus says, you know, you're going to have to drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism that I have, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. That's for God. This is an appropriate way for this first part of the story to end. Because, yes, James and John have to drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism, but that doesn't mean they get to sit at the right and left hand. They should banish that from their minds, as should every one of us. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are all called to drink of that cup and be baptized with the baptism. Your sufferings do not exalt you over your brothers and sisters. We are in this together. We are called to suffer together and to encourage one another and to stand alongside one another, not to try to exalt ourselves over the other. And that brings us to the second part of our text in which the same themes continue, but Jesus highlights another aspect of Jesus' work and of how we are to conduct ourselves here in this world. It says in verse 41 that the ten hear about this. Now, this is a reference to the other ten disciples. Remember, James and John, two of the twelve, have come and had a private discussion with Jesus. And now the other ten disciples, somehow or another, they hear about this conversation. And they are indignant at James and John. Now, you children hear this word indignant... It means that they were very angry at James and John. Now, you might think about that for a moment. Why were they angry with him or them? They must have been angry with them because they wanted the place at the right and left hand, and James and John were trying to get ahead and get there first. If it didn't mean anything to them, they wouldn't have anything to be angry about. James and John were not the only disciples who are having problems understanding Jesus and his ministry. And so Jesus calls all of his disciples together. And he speaks to them these final words from verses 42 through 45, which uh, we need to think about together, which are some very profound words in the scriptures. And here Jesus asks them to think about their political rulers. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, we today don't tend to have a generally high opinion of our political rulers. I think that's just a statement of fact. At least if you look at opinion polls, most political figures are not held in very high esteem. But I want you to remember that for the disciples and for other 
Israelites of this day, they really hated their political rulers. Here were the Old Testament people of God. And God had given them of old, had given them kings, David and his sons, to rule over them in righteousness. And instead, what did they have? They had the Romans who had conquered their land and who appointed their own rulers and kept them under a pretty strict leash. Now, you know, we complain about our political rulers, but you know, at least we have, in a sense, our own people ruling over us, right? I mean, they're fellow Americans, and we do vote for them. So in a sense, it's our own fault if we don't, you know, we don't like them. It wasn't like that. They had foreigners ruling over them. And they didn't get to vote for them. They didn't like their, these Romans at all. And so when Jesus says, you know about those Romans, you know about those political rulers, they must have said, yeah, yeah, we know about them. We know how they love power. We know how they like to lord it over people. And what does Jesus say? Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. He didn't really want them to be thinking about how bad the Romans are. He wants them to examine their own hearts and their own lives and to say, yeah, you who are so quick to judge others, apply that same standard to yourselves. How do you conduct yourselves as citizens of my kingdom? Do you have ambitions of power? Do you love self-promotion? Do you love honor? Do you love respect? Do you love praise from others? And here it is that Jesus brings before us the second crucial thing that we need to understand about Jesus' own ministry and about how we are to conduct ourselves. Let me read now verse 43 and verse 44. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That is what we are called to be, servants and slaves. For, he says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God here on earth, we are not the sort of people who promote ourselves. We are not the sort of people who seek our own honor. We are not the sort of people who seek influence. We are not the sort of people who try to get ahead of others. It may be the case that we see that at work among our political leaders, but it shall not be so. It cannot be so among us. That which must drive us, which must drive everything we do, is to say, how can I be of blessing to the church of Jesus Christ? How can I be of service to my brothers and sisters? Not how can I promote myself, but how can I promote my Savior and His people? Now, I want you to step back for a moment and to see this in the broader light of Mark 
chapter 10. I had already called attention to some things in Mark chapter 10. And I, now I want you to even step back further and to see how this chapter develops because it is really a fascinating chapter in Scripture. I suggest to you that beginning in chapter, in verse 13 of Mark 10, Jesus presents, in, the, in, in these stories, he presents four possible options for how we enter the kingdom of Christ and what our identity is as we live in the kingdom of Christ. So just bear with me for a moment here as we consider this, these four options. The first one is in verses 13 through 16. This is the story when these, these people bring their children to Jesus to get blessed by him, and the disciples shoo them away. Go, just stop bothering Jesus. And Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. And he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here is one option. One possible way we might enter the kingdom and find our identity as citizens of the kingdom. As a child. Okay, now here's a second way we might try to enter the kingdom of Christ. And that's the story of the rich young man beginning in verse 17. Maybe we need to enter the kingdom as a rich man. Maybe that should be our identity. A third possibility is our own text this morning, verses 35 through 45. Maybe it's as the powerful. Maybe that's our identity as we become citizens of the kingdom. Or you have a fourth option, actually, in verses 46 through 52. As a blind man, the story wonderful story of Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, who cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me. I think you may know the answer. There are two good answers here and two bad answers. Two of these present the way we need to enter the kingdom and ways we need to identify ourselves as kingdom citizens. And two ways are the wrong ways. How do you enter the kingdom? As a child as a child who is brought, as a child who has nothing, no resume, no initiative, no possessions, as a little child, and also as a blind man, crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me, I cannot see. Those are the two ways we enter the kingdom and live in the kingdom. And there are two bad ways to try to enter, to try to enter as a rich man, or as a powerful man. You know, as we think about this world, if you wanted to get ahead in this world, would you rather be rich and powerful, or would you rather be a blind child? Rich and the powerful has a, have a few advantages, don't they? But in the kingdom of Christ, it's not the way it works. Either we enter the kingdom as a child who has nothing. Either we enter the kingdom as a blind man who admits we cannot see or else we do not enter at all. In that previous story of the rich young man, he needed to learn something. He needed to learn that he may have made it in terms of this world he may have had great possessions. He may, have, he may have been an upstanding citizen who seemed to be very law-abiding. 
But if he wanted to enter the kingdom, he had to throw aside all those earthly credentials and rest upon Christ alone as a little child. And once you do that, you can't then go back to Jesus and say, oh, and by the way, I would like to keep my possessions. No, if you enter the kingdom as a child, all your possessions have to be put at Jesus' disposal. They are His to use as He wills. And it's similar here in our text today. If you come to Jesus, you have come as a little child, forsaking all your credentials, forsaking all the things that you might boast about. And if you have done that, you can't then turn around and say, oh, and by the way, Jesus, I would like honor. I would like glory. I would like power. If we enter the kingdom as a child, then we admit that we have no glory to claim. We have no honor to seek. No place for our influence as if that's so important. People of God... There are powerful people in the church of Jesus Christ. There are people who have influence in this world. Maybe people who are here today, this morning. But you can be assured of one thing. The most powerful person in the world who belongs to Christ has entered the kingdom in exactly the same way as every one of the rest of us, as a little child. And in the church of Christ the lowliest person in the eyes of the world is as exalted as the most powerful person in this world. Well, as we come to the end of our text, I do want to consider for a moment verse 45, the last verse of this text, for it brings these themes together in such a powerful way. Because what Jesus is calling us to in forsaking the quest for honor and power and influence in his church, it all makes so much sense when we consider the way Christ has purchased us for his kingdom. Verse 45 again, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man. This is a common title that he uses for himself in the Gospels. But now I want you to consider something. What is this title, Son of Man? In a way, you might think it sounds very humble. Well, Son of Man, he's just, he's just a human like the rest of us. But this Son of Man terminology actually comes from the Old Testament, especially from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet there sees a great vision. And he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So he's, he's seeing a vision of God Almighty sitting upon his throne. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. 
The court sat in judgment. The books were open. He is seeing God on his throne of judgment and it is glorious. And then he says, I saw in his night visions, this is Daniel. He says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What I like to tell my students is that, you know, you're all familiar probably with the story in Acts chapter 1 of Jesus' ascension. Right? From Jesus' perspective, or from the disciples' perspective, they see Jesus ascend to heaven after his earthly work is done. This is... This is the same event, but we're seeing it from the heavenly camera. Now, in the football now, you get like the, you know, the, what are they, the pylon cam and these things where you see things from special angles. This is the heaven cam of the ascension. Daniel is seeing Jesus, the Son of Man, ascend to heaven and take his place at the right hand of his Father. When Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, he is saying, I am the exalted king of kings. I am the one whom all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. And so what does Jesus say here in Mark chapter 10? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Here is the one that all are going to serve forever and ever. And he says, but I did not come now to serve I'm sorry, to be served, but to serve. The king of all glory voluntarily has become a servant. And who is he serving? Well, consider this for a moment. He says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. This is... This is commercial language. This is the language of the marketplace. And it's especially the language of the slave market. When you bought a slave, you purchased someone out of slavery, you paid a ransom price. He's talking about us, right? He paid the ransom for us. What does that make us? Slaves. We are slaves. Maybe not Slaves in an earthly sense, but we're slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the misery of sin. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, whom all nations will serve forever and ever, but I have made myself a servant. And as a servant, I am coming to serve slaves. Jesus, the King of glory, makes himself a servant to slaves. When we think about that, what wonder and gratitude should fill our hearts. What love, what service. And yet as we think then about our own lives as those who have entered a kingdom in this way, how can we be those who seek our own power, who seek our own glory, who seek our own honor? Shall we not be those who seek to serve? As our Lord has served us, shall we not put ourselves at the service of Christ and of one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you 
that we have such a great Savior. Though He is the everlasting King of glory, to whom all honor and glory and power belong, He made Himself a servant for our poor sakes. When we were lost in our sin and our misery, when we were nothing but slaves to sin and death. Thank you that he came to serve us. And Father, as we examine our own hearts this morning, we pray that you would strip us of all our own pretensions to honor and to glory, to praise, to influence. How easy it is for us to slip into these sorts of cravings. Father, may we be most concerned above all to be a grateful, humble servant of Christ so that our zeal and our passion may not be for our own self-promotion but might be for the promotion of Christ's glory and for blessing upon his people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.